Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you, brother, for making time for my podcast. Uh, it is really, you know, first of all, I want to say Ramadan Mubarak. It's a month of charity. So it means even more when you guys are coming on to contribute to the community, even though you're hungry and you're probably tired. So I appreciate it. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, everything, your experiences that you shared today will be beneficial to my listeners. And, uh, you know, I thank you for, for just adding value to the community and making time on such short notice. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm, I'm glad to be on, be on. And, I mean, you know, Ramadan Mubarak to you as well. I'm definitely happy to contribute in whatever way that I can. I've, uh, I've definitely learned a lot, you know, coming into this industry and everything. So I'm, I'm more than happy to share my knowledge. Excellent. That, that's great. So, uh, you know, without, without getting too much into your background, because I mean, you and I know each other, not just professionally, but personally, I know that your background is kind of non-traditional in the sense that you're a data engineer right now and you're working for big, big, you know, big name companies, but you didn't necessarily start out. Like I know you started out sort of in healthcare, if, if that's probably the best way to put it without, you know, exposing you, you, you started kind of in healthcare, you worked in like lab sciences and then made that sort of pivot. So, you know, let me ask you something as someone who started in a different field or different industry, what, what brought you into, into tech? So funny enough, you know, I'm working like in this non-technical field where I'm not really doing any programming or anything like that. There was a lot of data and we were analyzing the data. We were doing like statistics and stuff. So there's definitely transferable skills. Um, but what actually all started my love for this was a uh, SQL, you know, SQL, dealing with databases and stuff. And so um, I actually had a friend of mine one, one day, me and him are like sitting at the masjid and, you know, um, I actually never knew what he, what he did. He has like a degree in math and stuff, you know, so I was like, you know, you're not a math teacher. You're not like teaching uh, math at like a community college or university. So I was like, what do you do for work? He's like, I'm a data analyst. I'm like, you're a data what? He's like, I'm a data analyst. And you know, it's funny. He, all the all the while he's explaining to me this, like the description of what a data analyst does. And I'm thinking, man, this is kind of crazy. Like, I didn't know they had a specific job for this because, like, this entire job is one function of my job. You know, like I do data analysis, but it's just like one requirement of like, it's just like one responsibility of what I do. <laughs> so I didn't know there's an entire field dedicated to it. And then, you know, uh, he just happened to have his laptop on him and, you know, he opened it up, showed me how to like uh, pull data from a database and everything. And I don't know why, but instantly, like I was hooked, um, you know, it was, it was crazy to me because I had no technical knowledge. Like I barely knew how computers work. So I was like in shock and awe that like, oh my God, this is how you pull data from a database. This is where data is stored. And like ever since then, you know, I told him like, okay, you have a math degree. I, I kept thinking like you have to have some kind of computer degree to like be in these fields, right? And so I'm like, okay. That's what everyone thinks. That, that, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but it's just everyone thinks the same thing. You need a degree to work in the field. So continue. It's just funny you said that. No, no, no. And, and specifically, you know, we, we always think that you need a tech degree specifically to work in the field. But, you know, ever since he showed me that, I would talk to him and I'd be like, okay, so what do I need to do to basically do the same job that you do, like analytics, right? And then, um, so he showed me some courses. He showed me uh, some courses called Udemy. On, on a website called Udemy. And actually a friend of mine 
from college who actually got his master's in subsea engineering, he showed me Udemy and he actually showed me this stuff as well. And he's a data scientist for uh, Royal Dutch Shell, which I guess is a different version of Shell or something. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, yeah um, I think Shell is like an English company or Euro European company. So yeah. the name makes it make sense. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he actually showed me all this stuff when I was uh, still in college, like in my last semester. But for some reason, it just didn't click then. I think that's that's because at that time he wasn't actually doing the data science job. So, you know, he didn't explain it to me in the same way. So I was like, oh man, you know, I know about this site. I had a friend show it to me. And so I get on there, I buy like a course on SQL and Python and stuff. And I just start learning. And then um, after that, you know, I just start like diving deep, you know, just start looking at uh, like on YouTube, there's this, I think it's a channel called like Crash Course or something. And they have like this entire series on computer science. So I start going through this and my mind is just blown, right? Because I'm figuring out like, Okay, so this is how a computer works. This is how pro. Uh, this is how programming languages works. You know, so I'm just like, it's it's something really new and interesting that I never had. I never got to learn about this in high school. We didn't really have many classes on it, um, at, or they they did have one class in high school, but it wasn't taught very well, and it was always known to be like really difficult. So everybody just avoided it, you know. Um, so yeah, I just went down this deep rabbit hole and then learned more about databases. And then for some reason, databases really just capture my attention. Um, and now that I'm a now now that I'm a data engineer who's built data pipelines for like applications, you know, like in hindsight, I realize, yeah, okay, databases are a big deal because in the back end of like, you know, any software and anything that has to store data, like your database is crucial, you know. Um, so yeah, just dived deep, gained a lot of knowledge. Um, the hardest thing was transferring my skills to the tech industry. That took like hundreds of applications until I realized that you kind of have to, on your resume, not just list like what you do, but how you made an impact at a business or how you provided value. So once I started 100%, realizing, 100%. So, yeah, so once I started realizing that and, um, and alhamdulillah, I had a lot of other um, Muslim mentors, you know, who are like VPs at a bank or, you know, software engineers who are like friends of friends. And then I talked to them and showed them my resumes and they all gave me feedback. I basically consolidated all their information. And then finally I started getting interviews, you know, after like fixing up my resume. And then uh, luckily I got my first analyst job at a pretty well-known uh, healthcare company as an analyst, um, you know, I worked there. I only worked there for about a year. It was great. I definitely exceeded expectations. They were like shocked. And a funny thing is, you know, to all the people, um, like when you look back on my story, you know, at first I think you, I thought I needed a computer science degree. After I got to my first analyst job within like a couple months, because I studied so much stuff, I went so broad with like what I studied and like the computer science and everything. I knew more than the people I was working with who had like five or seven years of experience. So we're talking about senior analysts and I knew better SQL and Python than they did. And even like more about databases and ETL and just uh, data warehousing and all kinds of stuff. I think they were a little shocked <laughs> at just how much I knew. And so just within one year, you know, of that company, I kind of outgrew um, 
like the knowledge, like it was, it was too easy for me already at that point. You know, I wasn't really being challenged and the pay was really good. I was getting paid like 85,000. That was a, that's pretty good. So by the way, my salary went from 50,000 to 85,000 when I went from, yeah, <laughs> from one industry to the other. Right. So that's um, a 70% increase. That's crazy. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I started looking for data engineering jobs and I would have did an internal transfer there at that company, but working there for one year, I kind of understood how their culture was. And unfortunately, you have some companies that, you know, they still want you to have like some kind of technical computer degree before they let you more into like developer positions if you don't already have the experience. And that's how they were. So I was like, I'm not about to deal with that. I'm not about to waste years getting like a master's degree, even if they're going to pay for it, just so I can get like some data engineer job, you know? Um, so luckily uh, I just started looking for jobs. Someone reached out to me from a consulting company for my first data engineer role. So I got that role. Um, and by the way, this role, they told me that, you know, if you get this data engineer role, you'll be working for one of the top 10 companies in the world, not just in America, like by size, they're one of the top 10 companies in the world. So even getting like an entry-level data engineering position with them, even getting an internship with them would be huge, you know? Um, so luckily uh, I got that job, you know, I, and the hiring manager, he, he definitely knew that, you know, most of what I did was just SQL. I didn't have too much Python experience, but, you know, after we would just talk about my experience, he understood like my depth of knowledge and, he, he just believed in me, you know, he had that confidence in me, like, you know what, this guy doesn't have the degree or whatever, but he definitely has knowledge. And it's, it, it's basically like, I think when me and him talked, he had the understanding that like, I eat, sleep and breathe this stuff. <laughs> and uh, that really, that's like, I could just tell from the way our conversation went in the interview, that's exactly what he was looking for. Um, you know, and so I got the job you know, uh, a lot of what we did had to do with Apache Spark, which is like dealing with big data. And now, now mind you, I barely knew Python. I definitely didn't know Apache Spark. So I learned it uh, within a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, and then over a year later, I developed a bunch of data pipelines by myself for, you know, this application for one of the largest companies in the world. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's that's and that's pretty much my story now. You know, it's 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 crazy. I kind of have a hard time believing it when I say it out loud. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's 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 definitely been a journey, and the the only way you can go from here is up, inshallah. Inshallah, yeah. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, brother. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I I think you and I met when you were at like the healthcare company, and I remember we would talk about like what moves you're trying to make, we'll talk about the culture and what you say, I mean, a lot of what you said is kind of, has kind of been my experience, um, which is, you know, there are companies with the culture that they do want the degree, they have sort of the old school mentality. Um, like, I see that a lot here in New York with, with, with banks and, and VCs. Um, some of the hospitals actually, they're a little bit old school when it comes to management, they want like the MBA, the MHA, the MPH, all that stuff. Uh, when it comes to engineering, they do want like the MS from like, you know, in computer science or computer engineering. So, you know, you run into some of the same hurdles and stuff that I've seen, even though I know you're in a different, you know, time zone from me, you're running into the same problems. 
And, uh, you know, I like that you have this non-traditional story because, uh, you know, a lot of people think they have to get like XYZ certifications or degrees in order to get into tech. Um, you might need, you might eventually run into a point where not having the degree hurts you. Like in your case, in my case, like the, there are sort of these glass ceilings. But with that said, all you have to do is just go somewhere else then. It's not, it's not that you run into these ceilings early on. I think that's the mentality a lot of us have is that, and I think our parents, you know, for better or for worse, they don't really help us because um, they, they really feed that like, if you want to work in computers, you got to have a degree in computers, right? So yeah. uh, they, they kind of perpetuate that. And like, I see people graduating college. Like I have some, I mentor people from Stony Brook, some CUNY schools, Rutgers, University of Texas, University of California. So I have like about a dozen kids I mentored. There's one girl in Central Jersey. She goes, she graduated from Rutgers of Brunswick. She just got her scrum certification. She graduated in COVID, but I think like two years later, she hasn't had any luck getting a job, unfortunately. And uh, that's because she majored in biology. She, you know, didn't get into med school, which is absolutely fine. She's trying to pivot into tech, but she's just like, you know, do I need a master's in computer science? I need to go back and get a bachelor's. And I have to like kind of remind you, like a lot of the stuff you're hearing at home, because you live at home, you're getting all this negative knowledge. Um, you know, your parents love you, but there's a lot of outdated information. And unfortunately, the Daisy community, you know, our parents kind of feel like, I guess if you don't earn it, like you don't deserve it. So if you don't major in computers, but you're successful in IT, like they kind of look at you like you game the system or maybe you cheated or you're not doing something right or there's a shortcut or you're going to get like, I don't know, caught. And it just, it, it, yeah, there's just so much myths that, you know, we have to kind of uh, clear the air with. And that's why I love having guests on who uh, they work in tech, they're very successful in tech, but they don't necessarily come from tech or they didn't, you know, study it. Um, yeah. I'm self-study psychology, so, you know, and uh, you know, it's yeah, funny, it happens. there's actually a, uh, so actually I have two, two funny stories about people with a, a bachelor's degree in psychology. One of the software engineers I work with, his bachelor's degree is in psychology. And at one point in my life, um, you know, like right after uh, college, I wasn't able to get a job because, you know, I didn't know about internships and stuff and all that. And I just had a hard time getting a job right at the gate. Um, and so I was doing Uber for a bit. And so where I live, you know, one day I happened to pick up this guy from like a really rich area of, uh, of town. And um, we're talking about, he lives in a multi-million dollar house and I pick him up and I pick up all his friends and stuff. And, um, but before that, like while we're on the way to pick up his friends, I'm like, so what he asked me what I do, I asked him. And he mentioned he was a software engineer. And, uh, you know, it's crazy because he had like a bachelor's degree in psychology, but he's a software engineer living in a multi-million dollar house. So it's, it's really funny when people try to put all these limitations on what you can do. And, you know, like you said, like maybe some of those companies in New York or wherever, they'll put like a limit on you just because you don't have the right degree. But I completely agree with what you said. Just go somewhere else and um, like try to get the same role and succeed there. Because what's funny is when you do that, when you do that enough and you have like such great experience and you can really show on your resume, like you can really sell yourself on your resume, how much value you've provided. No one cares about your degree after that, because I mean, I'll, like, look at my example, you know, every time I go apply somewhere, they might see that, Hey, this person doesn't even have a computer science or computer information systems degree, but they worked at one of the 10 largest companies in the world. And they, they were the only data engineer who built data pipelines. You know, it's like, you can't deny that kind of experience, no matter, I don't care if you have a PhD in computer science from MIT, 
you can't deny that experience just for a degree because they have people with like degrees from the best universities in the world, but they haven't done what I done, what I did. So <laughs> it's uh it's it's a really funny dynamic, and it's it's just funny how all that works. I love it though. I I I'll be I'll be honest. Um, I know I should be humble, but I like to rub it in people's face sometimes. <laughs> Hey, look, I've been there. I've done the same, um, especially because, you know, there are people who they so there are people who studied like entrepreneurship and, or, or business or supply supply chain. So entrepreneurship and supply chain. I don't know what's wrong with these majors, but I've run into people who did that. Like while I was in college, we both did. You know, we both went to school and they would be in business school and they would talk about, ah, I'm going to be worth a million dollars. I want to have my own venture capital fund. It's going to be called this, this stuff. And then like years later, I look at them and they're uh, honestly like, I guess under six figures in like the New York City area with like five, eight, 10 years of experience. And I'm just like, your career trajectory is like really, really bad, like snail space. Like I, I'm not even trying to make you feel bad by telling you what I'm up to. Like I'm accidentally showing off just cause you're a little bit you know, further behind. But you know what it is, it comes down to is, uh, and you said this, value being able to articulate value some people are very bad at articulating value some people have really poor resume formats and the thing is they just use it for years and years and years and that's why they don't move up for years and years because like it doesn't matter what you've done what matters is what you can explain you've done articulate that you've done like you can work on a billion dollar project for apple or something but then uh if it's not on your resume or it's not clear on your resume like that this was your impact this was your ownership uh you know no one's gonna hire you no one's gonna promote you so being able to convey value, that's the important thing. Yeah. And you know, another thing is like people also have to understand like when you get that chance, right? Especially if you're from a non-traditional background, you definitely like there shouldn't be a misunderstanding. You definitely have to prove yourself a little bit more. I definitely feel that way. Um, like you can't get complacent. And eventually, even for the people from a technical background or like with a computer science degree, even they get to a point where if they're complacent, it's gonna hurt them as well. Like this field is just not one where you can sit on the sidelines. If you truly want to be someone who's like still a, uh, still employed in a situation like what the economy is in right now, right? You know, um, yeah. not not to not to say that you'll always have a job, but there like if you're at like a really big company like Amazon that's laying off tens of thousands, right? They definitely have some engineers there that they provide so much value. It could be it could be the day of judgment. They're not going to lay that person off. <laughs> you know, because they just provide that much value. So if you get complacent and you're not like that, you know, it's um, it's definitely going to hurt you in some way, shape or form. So once you get into the industry, people have to realize like, that's not, that's not the end of the game. Like this stuff doesn't end until you retire. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, I like what you said there that, um, you know, it, uh, oh my God, I already forgot what it is. Oh, no, no. So uh, you mentioned being complacent. So uh, I, I've shared this comment in other podcasts, but I'll share it again just because I'm very, I'm aware, I look at the analytics, not everyone listens to every single podcast. People people <laughs> like the guest appearances for some reason, actually, they like the guest appearances. I don't know what it is. I think it tells me they don't like me. They like other people. If the more popular podcasts are the ones where I'm not really talking, the other person's talking, that tells me <laughs> they, they're tired of my voice. But um. I'm going to share something my dad told me. So my dad's a cardiologist. He studied medicine, like, I don't know how many decades ago, but, uh, you know, he made a comment to me once, one time he said something that kind of stuck with me and he, he just mentioned like, 
you know, Muhammad, like I, I studied the human body like this many years ago and it's the same human body. Like we don't have any new uh, limbs or organs, like nothing new has changed. There's no DLCs, there's no upgrades. Yeah. But with computers, like he's watched, he's watched how computers have changed. Like he's, and he watches me like kind of read books, go to conferences like Google DevFest, ServiceNow, CreatorCon and, you know, Amazons and Microsoft and all these events. And he watches me, he watches me do them virtually or in person. He watches me travel. He watches me go to these professional meetups and I'm just trying to learn things. And um, it's like you said, like being complacent. There's some industries where you might be able to get away with it. Like I, um, I know some lawyers who like, they studied, you know, specific fields of law and they're just like, yeah, so, like th there are some areas of law where like things rarely change. And then there's other areas where they change a lot. Like it, it's based on the discipline. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, no, but uh, tech is one field, though, where things are always changing. Um, there's always new tools. Like, uh, the ways of doing business don't change so much, but the things in the background do. Like, uh, you know, Apple has the same, you know, laptops and phones they've always had, but it's the things behind the scenes that the consumers don't notice that on the back end, there, there's a lot of change that's always happening that we have to catch up with. Like, if someone who's non-technical watching this would be like, ah, it's not that hard. Like, the iPhone looks the same as it is. <laughs> it always has. And it goes like... Okay, yeah, I mean, physically things look the same, but then behind the scenes they don't. So people look at websites, they might not realize like, you know, we're using new frameworks and libraries and technologies for front end development on the consumer side, they might not notice, but on the back end, you have to like constantly learn all these new frameworks. I don't even know what's the latest one. I think like React and Angular are still mentioned a lot. Yeah, uh, React, Angular, a uh, little bit of Vue, Vue or Vue, however you say that. Um, oh, yeah, Express and Vue. I've heard, I, I've heard those uh, those frameworks and technologies as well. Everything. I feel like I just keep seeing everything JS, and I'm just like, I cannot even keep up. <laughs> yeah, and you know what's what's funny about like what you're mentioning is that you know forget forget like new tools and languages and all that. Like just when you're doing software engineering, the amount of stuff they change like just for the application or the project that alone is enough change to make someone tired really quickly. You know, like every time they like change like a feature or change some aspect of the application, um, I don't think unless unless, somebody, unless you're actually writing the code, a lot of people don't realize just how much like code you have to change or how much stuff you have to re-architecture. And then every time you do all that stuff or even make one small or one significant change, how much like retesting you have to do. It's uh, so just within like building a, a piece of software, there's like a crazy amount of change, not even considering like the industry, the tech or uh, IT industry as a whole. Yeah, no, I, I used to like a lifetime ago, I think this was like when uh, Steve Jobs is like still alive. Um, I used to work with iOS applications in Objective-C and I used to do some Android work with um, Java. So I used to use like the Android Studio and uh, the, I don't know if it was Xcode or, or if Xcode came out later. Um, but I remember back then, like I think when when Swift came out, I think Swift came out in 2008 or nine, correct me if I'm wrong. Someone, well, someone else will fact check me. But I remember they went from Objective-C to Swift. And I, I remember like during that change, I was kind of like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to leave development behind. I was like, I can't, I can't get over this hurdle. And I know like there was the Rosetta Stone and Apple had a lot of resources. Like they actually wanted developers to learn how to go from Objective-C to Swift. They, they wanted this transition to take place. Um, but I remember I was just like, yeah, I give up. And that's just like a mild hurdle. Like now I know people who have to learn like what, four or five plus 
JavaScript frameworks just to remain competitive on like front end development. And I'm just like, yeah, I cannot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's because, you know, everybody wants to do front end and front end development is like so saturated. Not that I've done like front end, I mostly do like back end data engineering type stuff. But I think the reason, especially a lot of new people want to do front end is, um, you know, it's, it's easier in some aspects, not to say that like everything's easy, but you know, like when you start dealing with backend, there's just uh, like you have to learn stuff about APIs, databases. That's where you're handling a lot of tricky business logic and stuff like that, you know. Um, and I guess, again, I've never done front end. So I just guess that's like a harder thing for people to handle mentally, uh, you know, or like a harder problem for more, most people to solve, uh, I'm assuming. Um, you know, you know but, it's interesting you say that. Like, I, I, for whatever reason, I've seen a lot of people attracted to front end development. Uh, I think it goes back to what you said. Um, it, it just seems, it, it seems like back end development seems a little bit harder, maybe less attractive. Uh, I also think with front end development, people like things that they, you know, I guess they can it's see. Easier. They can see it's when it comes to kind of explaining your value. Uh, when you're working on things front end, customer facing. Uh, yeah. You, it's a lot easier to explain why that that was so important, like this portal, this uh, new sign-on page, you know, incorporating this button, changing this, you know, folding this functionality or this feature under this drop-down menu, you know, cleaning things up, consolidating. Uh, people enjoy that. Like I've noticed people who, who like front-end development and uh, there definitely is this theory that front-end development is, is easier. Like I, I know some of the people I mentor, that is something they consider like first and foremost to go into like, oh, could I develop like, could I go into like UI type work or could I go into like design or could I go into like designing, you know, engineering websites? Uh, and that's like the first thing they think about. Like they don't even, it doesn't even occur to them that backend development is, is like a thing. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's funny though. I, I, I want to ask you something. What, is, what, what is your, uh, what are your thoughts on full stack development or full stack engineers? Because I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll tell you what I'm asking. Um, 10 plus years ago, there was no such thing as a full stack engineer. So there was only front end and back end engineers. But yeah. then after 2008, what I noticed is that um, companies started trying to get people who could do both, but for the same like salary. Yeah. Uh, and, and today it, it, it actually almost hurts. Like I know people who they're doing front end interviews and they get back some back end questions and the employer will say stuff like, look, you have to know some back end stuff or the back end engineers have to know some front end stuff so that there's good integration seamless you know handoff of work mm -hmm. and it's, it makes sense but the thing is they don't pay for that uh they don't pay for that privilege so what, what are your thoughts on this consolidation of titles you know for example they also have like business analysts slash developers or scrum masters slash project manager like they are <laughs> they're combining titles i mean i think i even see like cybersecurity slash like network engineers and i'm just like whoa wh why is everyone trying to add a plus so what are your thoughts on that so I think, and, and I, and this is probably more so in like IT type jobs more so than anywhere else. Um, that's something that companies are always trying to do. You know, companies just want like the cheapest people they can hire that can like get the job done. Um, and I think companies have this illusion that like, you know, that the quality of a software engineer or the quality of any any type of IT role is the same across the board. Like if one person can do the job, so can the other. That's not necessarily true. Uh, you know, like it, it, a lot of it boils down to like 
how good is one person's problem solving capability versus the other. And the best thing that really determines that is just how much stuff have they built. You know, like a lot of new people getting into engineering, they're like, man, how can I be a software engineer? And you have like, um, you have like literally every principal, staff and senior engineer under the moon telling them, dude, just build stuff. And it's like, it doesn't go, it doesn't get through their head, you know? Um, so companies don't don't realize that. So that's one reason, you know, they just want like the cheapest people because they probably think like, um, like anybody could do this. You know, a lot of the business people on the business side, they just don't understand um, themselves, like how hard this is. Or if they do understand how hard it is, they're just in denial. They don't care. They just, uh, they, I feel like, there's like a lot of outdated and old archaic thinking on the business side of like how things are uh, like, just like what the value of things are, you know, um, they don't understand like quality. They don't, they don't understand any of that. They just look at, they just look at certain jobs and roles as like an expense, you know, like this is just a capital expense or operating expense. And there's a lot more nuance to it than that. And so that's one of the reasons you you have that consolidation or that attempted consolidation. But I will tell you one of the problems with like I've I've always seen. So I work with uh, a couple full stack engineers, and what's funny is while their title says full stack, they're actually in reality each of them is either a back end engineer that knows a little bit of front end, or they're a front end engineer who knows a little bit of back end. But that's all it is. Like none of them that I have met can do both, none of them. I wanna make that very clear, right? So it's funny and it actually hurts companies. Companies don't realize that like just how much knowledge it is, you really can't know it all. And so the problem is when companies try to do this, you end up with a lot of bugs in your software or you just end up with a lot of crappier software or you have engineers telling like the PMs or whatever that, hey, this can't be done. When in reality it can be done that engineer just doesn't know how because you want them to basically have two different jobs. You want them to basically know everything and that's not going to work in this industry. And yeah. a lot of companies hurt themselves and they don't, I don't know, like, I don't know on the business side, like what the hell these, some of these people think, but, or actually in reality, maybe it's the fact that they're not thinking about it at all. And that's why they make some of these like silly decisions and just try to like combine like, three different jobs into one job title and it doesn't work like i think the people who have the worst are data scientists you know because data scientists at one point they wanted them to be like data engineers data scientists slash software engineers like they wanted them to have it slash a machine learning engineer they wanted them to have like four jobs into one <laughs> so i feel i feel sorry for the data scientists because they have it probably worse than the software engineers Oh, 100%. And I can tell you, like, on the business side, there's just such a, uh, I, I don't like this about companies. What some companies like to do when they're, you know, telling leadership how many people they have in each division, uh, they actually like to kind of inflate their numbers. And one way to do this is by having people wear multiple hats. So, for example, uh, if they have, like, 10 project managers, but five of those project managers are also doing Scrum Master work, uh, they're going to say we have 10 project managers and we have five Scrum Masters, even though it's only 10 people total. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think that's a really scummy way to report things, but I've seen this done once for, um, it was, I think it was a telemarketing company here in the US. Um, like the way they were publishing these, you know, they, they were just like talking about what kind of intellectual capital inventory do we have, you know, human capital management, 
And uh, yeah, they were like, yeah, this is, you know, this, you know, we, we have 10 project managers and five scrum masters. I'm like, but you only have 10 people. You're making it sound like you have 15 people, right? So I dislike that. I also dislike that, um, you know, when you conflate titles, uh, you, you know, keep in mind, uh, a full stack engineer is going to work 40 hours a week, but he's probably going to dedicate 20 hours of the front end, 20 hours of the back end. So you only get 20 hours of each out of him versus, you know, if you had a full uh, front end engineer and back end engineer, you know, they're doing 40 hours a week each of their specific discipline. So conflating the titles only hurts companies, I think, not to mention uh, Scrum and project management are different, right? I mean, uh, Scrum is is an agile methodology and, and project management is is different. You, you can't confuse the two. And honestly, like the work of data scientists, data engineers, like that can't really be merged with like machine learning. Like that's kind of its own discipline. Um, so it definitely hurts, it definitely hurts. Uh, you know, let me let me ask you something. What are your thoughts on on uh, on data science? Because I know it's it's interesting to say. I don't know where it came from. I feel like it wasn't a term in the 2000s. It's a title that kind of came about once uh, big data or data became like a commodity uh, yeah. post 2010. Um, where exactly do you think? Like, who do you think was like the first company to kind of have data scientists and um, do you feel like the data work, the work that data scientists do, was it being done before maybe, but just on a smaller scale? For example, I, I say that because I see business analysts who use Salesforce Lightning, and quite frankly, the work they do is not the same as the work of some of my data scientists, but like it's actually pretty close. Um, yeah. Like they're, they're becoming more, I guess, citizen programmers, they're becoming more empowered. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the origin of data science? And uh, do you feel like in the future, I guess people with like less training will be able to do more with the tools that we have today. So to me, I don't, I don't really like the term data scientist because I feel like what a data scientist actually is, and especially if you look at a lot of the job descriptions uh, for it as well, is just a statistician basically, right? Um, not that like there's anything wrong with, they should actually call them statisticians. But if you look at a lot of job descriptions for a data scientists, they always want like a master's or like a PhD in statistics or math or something like that. And there's a reason for that because all of this AI stuff and um, just machine learning and everything, a lot of it is built off of what? Like statistics, right? Um, and so honestly, I feel like back in the day, maybe companies, I don't know if companies used to hire statisticians or how that works. But I feel like that's that's just what they were. And then I guess once data became such a big thing, you know, um, you know, that term data science came out, uh, came out from there. But also one thing I know, and again, I'm no expert, while I do have a statistical background, I'm not an expert on statistics, but, you know, it's, it's funny that they talk so much about like big data and this, that, and the other, but a lot of what statisticians do in the point, a lot of the point of statistics is that you can draw conclusions from a certain amount of data that doesn't have to be like the entire population or anything like that. You know, you can make like these inferences and stuff, you know? So even the point of statistics is not necessarily that you need all this data, <laughs> but um, I guess like when you have a large amount of data, some of that's where like the machine learning stuff comes in and you can start training some of these models and all that stuff that they're talking about. Um, so I feel like somewhere at that point, like you said, you know, when all the big data stuff happened, that's when like the data science, like statisticians got turned into data scientists. Um, and to be honest, I feel like data scientists or were just like analysts at companies, except like, you know, then 
like when with all this big data stuff, companies went to their analysts and were like, hey, we need you to like step up your game. And then out came like data scientists. Um, you know, um, that's that's how I feel like that kind of happened. To be honest, I feel like they should just call them. I feel like both analysts and data scientists and machine learning engineers should just be like various levels of statisticians, you know, like I feel like that would make the most sense. Um, and I feel like a lot of like analytics depends a little bit too much on like visualizations, just answering business questions and not enough statistics, you know, um, that's with that, I guess that's, I don't know, that might be a personal opinion, but I feel like it would, it would work out a little bit better that way. However, that's also more difficult for companies because how many people actually understand statistics very well? You know, um, the thing about statistics is it's not like it's not like algebra where like, you know, certain formulas and stuff will give you like a, a exact answer every time or whatever. With statisticians, things are more so like within like a range or a certain probability. You're not dealing with like exact things. And that's harder for people to like wrap their head around. So um, Oh, yeah. that makes that makes sense, like a hundred percent. I inshallah, let's end this call and hop on to the next one. All right, see you then. Inshallah, let's uh, let's go to the next question. So, um, you know, let me let me ask you something. What skills do you think are important? Because I'll tell you, I see some people who I think are not. I don't want to say mathematically, you know, inclined or savvy. I think people put, because you've mentioned the importance of being a statistician, and I have to imagine that there is kind of a mindset affiliated or associated with being a successful data engineer. Um, I think some people look at IBM Cognos, or they look at some of these, uh, these tools, and they think that they don't have to have a strong mathematical background. Because I know some people who are just like, oh, I love data. It's empirical. It's true. It's, you know, data is facts. And I'm just like, look, I'm a data practitioner myself. But, and I can see you're attracted to the field. But I think sometimes you can tell if someone would make it or if someone kind of has an affinity for it. And it's usually the people who you saw in the past were successful with math or, or they, they did projects where, um, generating charts or data was kind of crucial for success. So what do you have to say to people who think they can kind of just jump into it if they're not good at math and they think they can just rely heavily on like a lot of commercial tools? Um, so, and we're talking about like data science uh, specifically, right? Yeah, yeah, data science specifically, yeah. So, it, so like I said, like in the last call, you know, like data science back in the day probably was just more so like, like businesses that hired like statisticians and stuff to do that work or uh, contracted out statisticians. Um, you know, an interesting thing about the statistics field is like in, in many statistics master's programs, there's always a class on like how to be a statistics consultant. And um, on LinkedIn, I actually know like three or four statisticians and they're all consultants in companies like contract them out. And like, that's I guess that's just like, they've been doing this for years before data science was a thing, you know? And um, I mean, they all make a good living. They've been st statistician consultants for like the majority of their careers. So, you know, like that's kind of where I feel like a lot of data science started. So when people think that you, you don't need to understand math or you don't need to have a strong math background, 
I would disagree. I feel like in some places, like, yeah, that'll be okay, but you're going to hit a ceiling really fast and it's, you're not, they're not going to like that feeling. And here, so let's take one, let's take a step back and talk about the math part. The reason math is so important, not just in this field, but in life in general, is because at the end of the day, math is problem solving, right? Even if, like a, a lot of people might think, back to that classical question in high school, why do I have to learn algebra? I'm never going to use it. You may not use algebra, but the methodology of like solving a problem that carries over from uh, from whether from your algebra, from your calculus, like just having to force your brain to think in a certain way, that is what carries over from math. And that's why it's so important. And honestly, when you look at IT in general, even if you're like a network engineer, even if you're like a sysadmin or whatever, you're doing problem solving all the time in almost every job I've held that even isn't in this field, they're paying you to solve problems. Businesses have problems. They need smart people who can solve those problems. And that's that's a big part of your value, you know? So people shouldn't look at math just as like, oh, I, I don't see them using a lot of math, so I don't need it. You need the math because it builds like a problem solving pathway in your brain. Like it, bring, it builds kind of like a, a muscle memory, but for your brain, right? But also when it comes to, if we go back to data science and statistics and all that, you can have all the low code or no code tools and solutions you want. At the end of the day, you still have to know how stuff works. So I come from a science background, right? And we would, we would work with a lot of software and stuff that would do a lot of the math and whatnot for us. But we still had to understand the data that it was putting out. And sometimes we would still check it by hand because depending on like what parameters you pass to the software, things could come out correctly, in, incorrectly. And the only way you could determine that is at the end of the day, you know the math and you could like quickly check it by hand, um, you know, like with pen and paper, you know? So people who, I feel like those people just have like a very surface level understanding of like data science or the other problem is again, you know, like we talked on the last podcast about how companies like to consolidate these roles. There's a lot of data scientist roles that they're actually data engineers or they're actually data analysts. And so they're doing like data visualizations. They're just pulling data from a database or they're building like data pipelines. So they're not really doing any data science. And so a lot of those people think like, oh, I'm a data scientist. No, you're not. You're not actually doing any data science. You know, you're not making any machine learning models or doing any kind of statistics or anything. Uh, you know, just because you have the title doesn't mean you, you necessarily have that job. For example, I've even seen software engineering jobs where all they're doing is building a data warehouse. Technically, that's not a software engineer. That's a data warehouse engineer. That's if you put a data warehouse engineer and tell them to go build an application, they won't know the first thing to do. You know, so I think that's something that uh, people definitely have to understand. Um, no matter what you deal with. If, if currently, like a lot of the stuff is abstracted, kind of a, a software is a good example, you know, like a lot of that stuff is abstracted away, right? We have these high level programming languages, like even C and C++ are technically high level programming languages, you know, but there are some, some parts of uh, software engineering where you have to understand like assembly language and you have to understand like the hardware and like internals of how a computer actually works.
And if you don't understand that, you're not going to be able to succeed at your role. And data science works the same way, you know, like, like in data science, um, if you make some like machine learning model or whatever, how can you trust the output if you don't understand the underlying foundational statistics that um, brings all of that about, you know? So you have to understand stuff from its foundations, um, no matter what role you're in. You know, that's definitely crucial. Um, I think some of the people I mentor, a lot of them are people who are pivoting. Uh, a lot of them are actually people who were pre-med and, you know, didn't make it. And then some of them are like mid, mid career folks or people who are trying, who are like directors, VPs. So not all of them are, are kids, but I see the younger ones. I shouldn't say kids. I mean, they're all adults now, but uh, I see them kind of, you ever hear like putting the car before the horse? Uh, I see them just saying, yeah, I want to be like a UX designer. And I go like, okay, so have you like, have you worked with wireframes or graphics in the past? Like in college, like, did you, were you part of a club where you were in charge of the promotions and the marketing or anything like, you know, it's um a lot of them, like they, they pick a field and they go like, okay, Muhammad, now get me to that field. And I'm just like, you know, it's the same, like it's data science. Someone will be like, yeah, you know, I really like, uh, I really like data. And I'm just like, what does that mean? <laughs> what? What does yeah. that mean? I, I'm like, I don't even know how to help it. Like, that's not a real, you know, like uh, to give an example, I had a PhD mentee, a PhD from, uh, from Rutgers uh, graduate school. And he, he had a PhD in psychology. Mm -hmm. His resume was very research, 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 but I was able to work with him and we cleaned it up. You know why? Because he actually used a lot of SPSS. He, he used a lot of R and we focused on not uh, sort of, you know, the, the psych research, but more of the backend stuff, which was the publications, you know, we focused on the data stuff that he had to do for these publications. And he recently got picked up by a gaming company or like a casino type company. Um, and the thing is like, you know, you think PhD in psychology, like that's a doctorate degree. After a doctorate, like you're stuck in that field. No one's going to take a guy who like studied everything psychology, but he was able to pivot because he could explain, you know, his attraction to data, how he's used data, how he's delivered value and and proven things and how he can, you know, he's, like you said, he actually is able to actually check his own work, not just trust the software. So that's a genuine interest. And it's, you know, I think you raise good points, which is uh, there's a certain mindset you have to have if you want to go into, into data science. It's not something I think people can kind of throw a dart and they go like, okay, I'm going to be a data scientist. You know, it's, uh, you kind of have to have like, some exposure beforehand. And basically, I guess, make it make sense. Like, uh, it, it doesn't matter how attractive you are to something. If you've never done anything with it, like, you you don't even know if you're going to like it. So why commit to it? And, you know, there's a big conception that even jobs in business and, like, IT are just, like, easy or you just learn a programming language and that's it. Believe it or not, like, you know, being in, like, that, uh, the other industries, like, I've met people who are, like, chemists and physicists and stuff like that. And they come here and they're like, man, this is harder than what I was doing before. You know, I think there's, there's just that big, big, big misconception. Um, maybe because we see business people on TV all the time and they're just like talking and nobody's really working and they think that's what it is, but that's not reality. You know, in, in actuality, you know, working at a business and making that business succeed is one of the most difficult things you'll ever do. You have PhD physicists that work on like the Hadron Collider in Europe that would probably find that easier than sitting in a boardroom trying to see like, how are we gonna make sure this company meets like a certain revenue goal in like one or two years? You know, how are we gonna create the next application that's gonna be a hit? Um, 
you know, that's that's not easy work by any means. It's just, uh, I don't know why, it's, it's just an assumption, I guess, you know. Uh, and so people make that assumption based off of nothing. And uh, they unfortunately, uh, or if they do get in, it hits them like a, it hits them like a freight train. You know, they don't, they never expected it to be this difficult. But uh, what, what they don't understand about business is like, nobody really holds your hand. Maybe a few companies do, or if you're really lucky and you have good people to train you, but I would never depend on that. Like nobody holds your hand. I've heard so many stories about somebody starts at Facebook or somebody starts at like some like middle tier company and their onboarding sucks and nobody showed them anything, but that's, that's what business is. That's why a business hires you. A business hires you thinking that you can solve those problems. And if you can't, they're going to fire you, you know, businesses hire people and basically say, you know what, looking at this per person's credentials, they may not say this to you, but in their head, they're basically thinking like, we think this person can figure it out and they're either going to be right or they're going to be wrong. So, you know, if you, you get into this field, it's uh, a lot of stuff. You just got to figure out and kind of engineer it to succeed. Oh, hundred percent. Uh, let me ask you, what does a typical day look like when, when you're at work, like, uh, from the moment you start to the moment you end, is it a lot of meetings? Is it a lot of independent work? Is it a lot of collaboration? And if you can share, I mean, what tools kind of make up your arsenal in your, in your day to day? So what a day looks like is it's, so it's very, it's going to be, I wouldn't even say it's company dependent. It can be company dependent because some companies have a culture. So well, let me let me go back. Okay, so every company has a culture, right? But some companies enforce that culture company wide to every team, and some companies don't enforce that culture in every and it's more team dependent. Like Amazon is this way. You know, you hear a lot of bad stuff about Amazon, but if you talk to anyone who's worked there. They, everyone will tell you it's very team dependent. You know, it depends. Like, so Amazon has like this overall culture Then they have a subculture within like each team and what your day looks like and whether you, if you, whether or not you're even going to succeed or like that job is very dependent on the team you're in. So at least for me, um, as a data engineer, I don't have, thank God, I don't have too many meetings because our company is smart enough not to follow agile. And uh, again, they're one of the 10, and largest companies in the world and they don't really follow agile in the traditional sense we have like a sprint planning and that's about it we have a sprint planning and once in a while a sprint refinement only if they only if we really need it but otherwise than that we have a stand up every other day so that's the meetings i have you know and we we work off of like two week sprints and so most of the time i'm just focused on like just coding and getting my work done. You know, that's that's one thing I will say about this company is great is most of the time I'm writing code. Um, the other half of the time I'm working with like the product, product managers, project managers, uh, making sure that the requirements, um, like I understand the requirements because it's based off of the requirements that I write the code, you know, uh, and they change stuff a lot. So, um, there are, there are ad hoc meetings or like I'll just message them a lot through like Teams or Slack and ask them like a lot of detailed questions until I feel like I have what I need to write the code and give them what they want and make the application do what they want it to do. Um, so that's what a rec that's pretty much what every day looks like for me. 
Um, some days it's just less meaning, some days it's more. Um, and it, it all depends on who I'm working with. You know, some people are really great communicators and they can send me like a paragraph and I understand like right then and there, like, okay, this is what I need to do. Other people, it's like, uh, it's like pulling teeth from a baby or whatever the uh, term is, you know, um, they're not good communicators. So you have to like ask the same question, like 10 different ways uh, to understand, like, what is it that I actually need to do? Um, but that's, that's pretty much a lot of what my day as a data engineer looks like. And even for my software engineer colleagues, uh, it's, it's probably the same for them. Uh, I feel like though, working on a data pipeline, it's easier to keep it bug free uh, than it is like the back end or the front end. So I feel like they deal a lot more like fixing bugs and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that, that would probably be my day. Now, I will say some companies are different and like you're stuck in meetings all day. And I've had that experience as well. Like uh, when I was an analyst, I would be in like sometimes six hours of meetings and only one of them had anything to do with me. But for whatever reason, they want you there uh, just to be like a fly in a wall, but you're not really, no one's, no one's picking up anything from six hours of, a meet, six hours of meetings in a day, you know? So I, I don't understand the purpose of that, but that's how some companies are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it, uh, it's definitely company specific, but it sounds like you actually have uh, a workplace that is uh, not too bad. Like I know some places where um, you've got junior developers coming to like shadow meetings that have nothing to do with them. And that's like very low maturity in companies or very poor, you know, posture. And then there are some companies that are on the other end of the spectrum where like, for example, uh, I, I know CIO at a manufacturing company um, where I was actually like, I was actually their interim CIO for a while. And then he came to over and he's been there for about like six months or something. And uh, he's like, yeah, I haven't seen like leadership in like three, four months. And I'm just like, wow, like you're the head of the company's IT. And you're telling me you haven't seen like the people above you in so many months. Um and that's like, that's way too lax. Like, I think people at the top should be meeting up kind of frequently, but not involving everyone from like top to bottom. So it sounds like you're in a, you're in a place where there's a good, there's the right amount of meetings. It, does that make sense? Like, I, I think it's not, not too, too bad. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I, I, I wish a lot of companies would like uh, take, like take heed and learn from this, you know, because if you look at some of the best companies, at least in like the Fortune 100, right? And I don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, Fortune 5, Fortune 10, and Fortune 100. But there's a reason these companies are so successful. And it's because certain practices and culture that they have, you know, at, at the really successful companies I've been with, you know, they, they minimize meetings as much as they can. Almost all of them have like a rule where on Friday, there's no meetings. It's just a day for you to put your head down and work, you know? Um, so they're, they're really big on that. And there's been so many articles. I think Forbes recently had an article a couple of weeks ago where they're talking about like how many millions of dollars companies lose, if not more, just because of like meetings and stuff like that. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something companies need to take a lot more into consideration. Um, a lot of those meetings can be emails. <laughs> a lot of them can be emails, but for whatever reason they aren't. 
Oh yeah, no, I've, I've, I've had to go on site for client meetings sometimes where it's like, um, forget emails, man. It could be like a text. Like I legit, for example, you ever have, uh, you talked about agile, you ever have these morning meetings where you got the, you have that one guy who's like day after day, he's like, I have nothing new to report. Yeah. I've had meetings where like, we have to go on site. And like, for example, I say I have nothing to report. Cause like, I'm very involved in the beginning of like these projects. Then I bring on vendors and for like the middle portion of the project, it's all my vendors, but like, I still have to come on site and I'm just like, like, no, I'm just, uh, you know, I have nothing to report. Like, that's literally it. That's my whole spiel. Yeah. And I've had to sometimes like, I sometimes have to drive or travel pretty far for these once a week or once every two weeks or once a month meetings. And, uh, yeah, I definitely share that mentality. I'm like, a lot of these things could just be emails, man. Um, but then yeah. when you have the leadership, they want everyone there. They want to see, see the people. They want to be on the same roof. They want you to kiss the ring and, and go through all yeah. the questions and you got to. And that's, you know, that's kind of the thing with like remote work and stuff like that as well, right? Like, I feel like a lot of these C-suite executives or like even like a lot of higher ups on the business side, they don't like remote work. Um, you know, for that reason, because someone's not there to like kiss the ring or, you know, th like their job is mostly like it's it's uh, communicating with people and delegating, you know, and so it, you can do that remotely, but they don't like it because I guess their job is so like it's a uh, people intensive, you know, just like talking to people, even if it's about unrelated work things. Like that's so ingrained in the roles of their jobs that, you know, uh, that's probably why you have a lot of this return to office stuff and whatnot. <laughs> oh my God, I'm against all this return to office nonsense, but uh, yeah, no, I've always been a huge proponent of working remotely, which is funny because as a consultant, I like I sometimes come in as an interim executive for companies. I'll tell my employees, like the company's employees, I mean, not mine. I'll tell the company's employees that their resources, hey, you guys can continue working remotely while I kind of, you know, ensure continuity of operations. I can't even work remotely though, because CEO and CFO, <laughs> they want me there. But the employees, I always try to kind of cultivate that culture. Um, it's funny though, because the GSA, the General Services Administration for the federal government, they're trying to find like a way to maybe repurpose a lot of the federal real estate because they're just like, yo, we have all this empty office space. I mean, we can, maybe we can do something because um, GSA, they pay the leases and they handle the operations for all federal buildings. So they're the ones making sure you have, I don't know, like you, you have the lights on, you have like carpeting, you have, you know, they, they ensure everything is, 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 is workable. They also handle all our cars, like all the federal cars are part of their, their fleet um, and agencies use them. So a lot of the buildings belong to GSA, but they're leased by agencies. It's a very interesting relationship where one government agency is paying the other lease and taking care of it and all that stuff. But yeah, the GSA is like telling agencies, Hey, can we like turn your buildings into something else? Maybe, you know, make money for the government. And these agencies are like, no, that's our building. Like we we're not, it's empty. We have like maybe one employee coming in, but we're not going to, we're not going to let you use that. So that's something that's interesting. And here in the city, there's actually a lot of folks who are grumbling and mumbling and they're unhappy because like they have to go back to work. Uh, particularly folks in like expensive buildings like World Trade Center, yeah. right? So I have a friend who works at a bunch of friends that work at World Trade Center, but I know one of them works for like a kind of like a, a health related company. And she was upset. She's like, yeah, because they pay so much like for the lease. I mean, it's World Trade Center. It's a very lucrative, right. very nice area, fancy area. It's Wall Street too. So that's that region is expensive. 
she's like, yeah, we have to come in for appearances so that like people who at the top don't feel like they've wasted money. Because a lot of these leases, these commercial leases are like 30 years, right? Yeah. They, they start off at like 510, then they become like 15 when you renew, then it becomes like 30. Um, that's why, I don't know if you've ever seen this. You ever go to a plaza and you see like a store has shut down, but like the sign is still up. There, are, There's instances where like companies like still have to pay the lease uh, even if they're not using the place. So wow. it's cheaper than like the penalties, right? Particularly yeah. like if they're 20 plus years into a 30 year lease, rather than pay the penalty, because the penalty might be like half your lease or something, they'll just pay like the few more years that are left. So that's why if you look, if you look at a strip mall and you go like, oh, why don't they put a pizzeria here? How come the dollar store is still there? Yo, the dollar store might still be paying the lease. That's why they can't put a new store yet. Um, no, it's, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised like that these companies pay for these 20, 30 year leases instead of just build their own building. Like, I feel like it has to be cheaper to make your own, like, corporate building than it is to have, like, a 30-year lease or something, right? Oh, 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 100%, 100%. It just comes down to um, business expenses. Companies love business expenses. They love uh, tax deductions, and leasing is a tax deduction. Um, it's just, you know, I don't want to say they do shady things, but I've seen a lot of companies where they try to have, you know, a million dollar of leases so that Uncle Sam doesn't notice the $20,000 they spent on Yu-Gi-Oh cards. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. kind of smoke screen, smoke screen. So when you're spending a lot of money on legitimate business expenses, the illegitimate expenses kind of get, they don't stand out as much. Now, if you own your building, guess what? Because you're not submitting all the receipts for all the light bulbs and the carpeting and uh, I don't know, security and renovations and window cleaning and this and that, because you own everything, you can't submit that as a deduction. Now suddenly all your, uh, you know, $2,000 pizza parties are gonna stand out. They're gonna be a lot more obvious because you don't have all these legitimate stuff to kind of camouflage it. So, oh, so, so that's not an actual legitimate tax deduction. They're just like basically messing with the IRS and <laughs> deducting it anyway. Uh, no, 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 it is. It, it's, so when you're leasing a building, there are deductions present that you can't deduct when you like own the building. Um, ah. it's kind of like there's, there's deductions for that companies have with contractors that they don't have with like employees. For example, like, I don't, I don't even know if payroll is considered a, a like a, a deductible expense. Um, it's just, it's a very complicated relationship, but I know when I've looked into it, uh, I've seen a lot of companies prefer to just, they prefer to own nothing and rent everything. Mm -hmm. Um, just because like the more stuff you can overwhelm the IRS with the less likely it is you'll get caught doing something shady. And the fact is, every company is doing something shady. Uh, yeah. So that's why they want to. That's why they want to lease. And also, it also goes into, um, you know, own companies don't want to own their own building. They actually like the freedom to be able to move, um, <laughs> especially because a lot of companies are leaving New York City for like Atlanta or Dallas. So I think they're very happy that they haven't. Uh, they never built something and put their name on it, because then it becomes hard. You know, once your building is kind of known as that building, it becomes kind of hard to like, you know, sell it. Like uh, 28 Liberty Street, that used to be known as the J.P. Morgan Chase Tower. And I know like even now, people still refer to it as the Chase Tower, even though it's gone through like, I think it's gone through two owners maybe. Um, I think Chase has like a few floors, but it's not like their building anymore. Uh, but yeah, like that's the thing. It, nobody wants to own their own building because they know when, once it's time to sell, um, it's going to be hard because your name's all over it. And even if your name's not on the bu building physically, if it's still known as like your building, it's going to be hard for the new person to raise awareness and market and be like, oh, we're the new owners, we're the new tenants. So, but yeah, it also goes, it, it, it really is just corporate greed and, uh, you know, just funny tax business. I know, I know a lot of people will deny it and say, oh no, this is legitimate, but no, I've, I've been on the other side of the room and I, I've heard some pretty haunting things.
when it comes to like all these different strategies and having a holding company in this island and having an umbrella or, or, or some other corporation there and having a subsidy here and having everyone bill each other so that we still report a loss. And I'm just like, wow. Do you think that when some of these companies' leases are up that they'll continue like like, do you think that some of these companies will just like find one main office or one or two main offices to lease and then go remote with the rest? Or do you think that they should do that? Like, I think that's what Reddit has done. Like, I know some companies have just like a one main corporate office and then they're just having people work remotely. Um, but honestly, at the end of the day, it just comes down to control. Uh, a lot of companies, they hate remote culture. And no matter like it doesn't matter how how much sense it makes to have people work remotely. Um, they're just going to enjoy the control they have over their employees' lives. Like, keep in mind... Um, it's, that, it's that old, archaic mindset that, you know, yeah, that yeah. they, they manage is. they manage by fear. That's why. They, they don't know how to manage fear. properly. And honestly, like, think about it. Having you commute to an office, like, that that prevents you from having any energy. Because interviewing takes energy. And if they can take away all your energy just so you can do your job, they're going to prevent you from leaving. And uh, that's just, they're exercising control over you, right? They're, they're, they're but, controlling your life. But that still doesn't work because people still leave like all the time, you know? So it's like- Oh, not older folks. Older folks have a, have a harder time. Uh, think about it. Like people who have been commuting to the city for two hours from Middletown, New York or something, those folks uh, are tired. Like, because it also takes time for them to learn like new skills. Okay. So that, that, that's, that's the thing. Like it's easier for our generation um, but no, no, like the people in their late thirties or forties or fifties, like they're still at the mercy of like this, this antiquated way of working. And this wasn't always present. Like I remember in like the two, early two thousands or nineties, dude, like people, first of all, there was not nearly as much traffic because not like parents weren't buying their teenager who was 18, a freaking Jeep. Like yeah, <laughs> most of the cars on the road, like I remember most of the cars on the road were like people carpooling. Like there wasn't as much in like just one driver. The bridge was never full at GWB. It was never this overwhelmed. Right. Yeah. So uh, I remember like commuting to the city, commuting to your job actually wasn't a chore. It was actually something very like going to Manhattan was like 30, 40, 50 minute drive. It wasn't like a multi-hour affair. And uh, you know, during weekdays, like dads would go walking around the neighborhood with their kids because they had so much energy and time. Uh, but work has become a lot more stressful. Companies have become a lot more greedy, a lot more unchecked. Uh, commuting time has, you know, that's the thing is, um, you know, commuting has become so difficult. Uh, public transits are underserved, under-resourced, overwhelmed. Um, every a-hole with a car is on the, uh, on the road now. So, like, I, I hate driving in traffic and I look around me and every car has one person. I'm just like, dude, like, at least let there be, like, a spouse or a dog or some other thing. Like, uh, why are we all biking? We should all just be biking if it's just one person. <laughs> and, and you know what's funny is some companies uh i think ford forbes had an article on this as well i think it was forbes where like they're trying to make their offices look like a home and it's like dude that's not the point people people don't want to go to an office that looks like a home people want to work remotely because they save time like yeah. commuting you know and so to the majority of people like you're going to be more productive like um you know, if you're, if you're actually like, if you, if you have employees that deliver good quality work before, they're only going to get better, like working from home, because now they have more time, they're more well rested, 
they have less stress because they're not worried about like child care as much or you know they actually get to see their kids like that alone like what that does for like their their mental health you know i think companies don't companies are very uh i don't know tone deaf is the right term but uh, yeah they're very they, they definitely don't understand like why people like working remotely a lot of it is because you don't have to waste time commuting you know you can actually spend time with your loved ones uh you're more productive like when i was in the office the amount of times i would get interrupted is like oh man i, I if i had a dollar for every time i would just get interrupted while trying to work i'd be rich i could retire right now uh <laughs> but yeah um i don't know i hope in the future like i feel like um now that the economy is bad a lot of companies are doing return to office but some companies and some actually pretty big companies are like, no, we're not we're not doing return to office. We're going to stay remote. I know some pretty large uh, Fortune 100 companies that are actually selling some of their uh, offices. Um, Yelp is actually a good example. You know, Yelp, I think they sold like their main offices and they just have like one main office and everything else is remote work. And um, they save more money. They have happier uh happier uh, employees. And, you know, one thing is companies are always trying to like retain their employees, right? Because it's expensive to hire new people. Well, one of the things that keeps them is remote work because especially in a climate where like there's not too many remote jobs, you know, the people who have them are not going to leave that company anytime soon or only when they really have to. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do, do you think like after the economy gets better, some companies are going to like go back to being remote and stuff like that or how, how do you what do you think like the future of 100 remote work is yeah so i'll tell you this I, i'm seeing a lot of companies that are shooting themselves in the foot by making forcing people to come back so for example and this goes back to uncle sam and the federal government uh federal government agencies have uh they they have stopped remote work um i have a friend at uh at uh you know some I know some friends of the DOD at various agencies, whether it's like the accounting service, DFAS, I forget this name, or, or DCMA, uh, they've gone from going to the office like once a week or something to like four days a week. Um, yeah, so government is, uh, you know, the government is a great example where they've struggled historically to get good technical talent. And now they're driving away that same talent by making people come back because COVID's over. Uh, a lot of companies are also forcing people to come back here in New York. Um, and yeah, there's high attrition. Uh, they're saying that they're going back. And next thing you know, I see people with the, the green uh, frame on LinkedIn. They go like, hey, uh, we have to go back. So I'm open to work. I'm, uh, I'm looking for new opportunities. So I think it's going to be polarizing. We're basically, it's sink or swim. Some companies are going to wise up. They're going to float and they're going to do well, like Yelp and, and, and Reddit and all these other, you know, uh, good tech companies. And, uh, I think some companies are going to learn too late um, that, you know, they, they need talent. They, they, they need to cater to the employees. Um, and unfortunately they're going to be too slow to learn. So to give you an example, uh, JP Morgan Chase, um, you know, it's, it's a decent bank, I guess, but I've, I've interviewed there and I've seen the, the technical talent they have. And uh, quite frankly, I, I had an interview there a few years ago and I was actually almost turned off because like, the way they were communicating or talking, like I could tell these are not the best of the best. And these are people who are like high, high up in management. Uh, and it just looks like they can't attract folks. Not to mention the salary was actually fairly low um, for like the director level jobs. 
So, you know, when you have these old integrated companies, they're, they're just getting the old school folks. They're not getting uh, people who know new practices, methodologies, you know, the hot skills. Uh, I think they're going to fail. I think a lot of these older companies are going to fail. I think the younger companies are going to be left in the ashes um, because they don't learn until it's too late. Like they don't, they don't do a yeah. phased approach. They just tell everyone we're all going back to the office in 30 days. They don't go to, hey, <laughs> like, let's, let's do a pilot program. How about 100 people volunteer to come back to the office? Let's see how it feels. Let's see how it looks. Let's see what happens with productivity. If they ask for volunteers, I'm telling you, some people would volunteer. Look at the data. Look at the output. Look at, is the output going up? If so, maybe people should come back to the office. But honestly, it should be a volunteer basis. And if output is staying the same, and that's the thing that I hate. When the output is the same in the office or at home, they go, like, okay, make people come to the office. <laughs> um, no, that's that actually tells you they should stay at home, right? Like that takeaway that that thinking so you know my my biggest issue with companies today is that they still they live so much in the past and i i understand like organizational change is hard but it's not like it's not as hard as some people claim and it's definitely not as hard as some companies and uh executives make it out to be you know we 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 have like this 40-hour work week and they're still very focused on like time in office or like time in your seat. Like, like a lot of the work I do, to be honest, I can do it in two hours or three hours or four hours sometimes. Rarely do I ever need all eight hours of the day, right? Uh, what really stretches out that time is more so like me just waiting on other people. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with remote work. Even when I was in the office, I still had to wait on people or like any dependencies before I could do my stuff, right? But me actually like doing my work, it only took a small fraction of the time. And I feel like one big issue is companies are still too focused on like how many hours you work instead of like, are you actually meeting the goals and providing value? Because I don't care if I have like, if I have an engineer who works one hour a day, but he's meeting it, he's meeting and exceeding all goals. I mean, hell, that's, that's exactly what you should want, right? Companies should want the most efficient people that they could possibly hire. I think Bill Gates was quoted saying one time that, you know, like I look for the laziest people because they're gonna find the shortcuts. They're gonna find like the quickest and most efficient way to do something. And in turn, that saves the money, that saves the company money, that opens up time to do like more, more uh, valuable work, you know? And uh, companies don't ever look at it that way though. They look at it as like, nope, you have to be here eight hours a day, five days a week, um, and you have a lot of companies that do that, but their people still aren't meeting the goals. The company's still not succeeding. So obviously something isn't working and obviously some of these people are wrong, but they don't ever want to look at that. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, they, it's, they never do. They don't want to listen. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a consultant and I, I hate when people like go like this, when I have to like give them some information, <laughs> right. It, especially if they're paying yeah. for it, but some people just want to, I, I, well, it goes back to Batman, right? Like some people just want to watch the world burn. Well, not even that. Like, I think, especially since I've, it, like, you know, I've worked in consulting as well. And one thing I realized is, um, like, people love consultants who tell them what they want to hear. That's what they want consultants for. They want consultants to basically just reiterate the same thing so that they can feel good about themselves and believe basically so they can lie to themselves and feel good about it. That's what they want consultants to help them with. But if you're a consultant who's actually gonna help them by telling them something that they're not open to, 
Oh man, good luck. That's like taking candy from a baby. You're going to hear a lot of crying. Oh yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Like that 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 has been my experience where I can tell like they're just looking for like an echo chamber. They're just looking for someone to kind of echo their sentiments. Um but you know, I know it's almost iftar time, so inshallah, I'm going to I'm going to head out and and just join my family, but I do want to thank you brother for making the time and kind of talking about data and also you know, touching on more modern topics because I actually have wanted someone to ask me my thoughts on remote work. And that's the thing. A lot of the guests don't like to ask me the questions, so I don't get a chance. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience and thoughts. Well, definitely. Thank you for having me. And I, I definitely enjoyed it, you know. So uh, if you ever want to have me on again, I'm always more than open uh, open to it. It was a great talk. Thank you. All right. Jazakallah, brother. Yeah, we'll definitely have you on. Hanukkah. Awesome.